welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. So this week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm super excited to share Allison Cassing. Allison is actually a member of the H2R Product Science team. Um, she and I worked together, uh, I guess, several years ago at this point at, um, at MediaMath during its high growth days. Um, she was already there when I joined and, um, and then uh, we both left for different companies um, and stayed in touch. And then I brought her, you know, asked her if she wanted to come and be part of this team um, because I love working with Allison. So I'm super excited to share with my uh, listeners. So Allison, welcome to the Product Science Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Holly. Happy to be here. So do you want to start with a little bit of, um, you know, how you got into product management? Because I know it wasn't an obvious path for you. Sure. Yeah. So I maybe I'll start in college. I studied economics and statistics in college, but always had an interest in fashion and lifestyle. So I would go to my econ and stat classes, and then I interned a lot in fashion and PR. uh, And that was through the summers and in my off time during school years. And then when I was leaving my university, I wanted to be a fashion assistant in a magazine. That was kind of my dream job. Uh, And I sent out a ton of resumes and cover letters and didn't get any responses. And one of my professors. I was going to ask you. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I was going to ask you a silly question here. Um, Was that before or after the Devil Wears Prada movie? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. I think it was before. Yeah. But I, I, maybe after the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you yeah. wanted to be like, <laughs> so carry on. So you sent a yeah. bunch of letters. I think that's a, a hard to get job, right? Like a lot of people want that. Yeah. And it's a lot of connections. I think often is helpful. Uh, and I had my internships, but I wasn't steeped in things. I didn't go to school in New York. I wasn't around all the time. So I sent out all these resumes. I didn't get any responses. I even sent hard copies to the mm-hmm. offices because I thought, mm-hmm. oh, this will make me different than just an email. Uh, but then a professor of mine uh, from the University of Chicago sent an email saying, oh, the Federal Reserve is still looking for research assistance if anyone wants this. It was kind of you know, a, an email to a lot of people. And I thought, huh okay, I kind of just want a job at this point. And that sounds reasonably interesting. Uh, I never really thought that that would be what I wanted to do. But I was like, huh, this sounds interesting. Sure, I'll apply to this. So I applied and they brought me in for an interview. I met with a bunch of the different sections and went, got the job in the industrial output section. So I worked there for two years as a research assistant. And that was a lot of data scraping um, and some low-level programming to scrape data from websites, and we collected tons of information to put out the Industrial Production Index. So that's what that group did. And what is the Industrial Production Index? It's a measure of what the industrial production is in the United States each month. So we're looking at, uh, I particularly focused on aircraft. So we were looking at aircraft production, uh, but we take, you know, tons of information about steel production, there was paper and pulp, like all the, there were a bunch of RAs in my group and they were focused on different areas. So 
Uh, we collected all of that, put it through some machine that The Economist ran, uh, and popped out the industrial production index number. Yeah. So basically, that's like when you go to like a major, when you go to like, what is the federal, what is the U.S.'s number on this, like how much of this we produce a year? You were like crunching numbers in there, helping them. Right. Yeah. And that was, I was there from 2008 to 2010. So that was during, or like the recession time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like people always ask me like, what was it like to be there? Like, was it so crazy? Um, And it wasn't like pages were flying out of printers and like, everyone was running around, but it was different. All of the models that we used were different because things were changing so much from what it had been for so long. So that was the biggest impact on my, my time there. Um, but I guess the big part of being at the Fed is I was, so I worked in industrial output, but also was tasked with, oh, I forget my exact title, but it was something like the chart RA. So I made a lot of charts for the economists across the board for internal presentations and then also congressional uh, presentations that the chairman would do. So I uh, learned some like basic charting program. It's called, what's it called, Fame. It's something that like no one else uses, Um, but I would make a bunch of charts for these presentations. Economists would tell us you know, what numbers they wanted and what they wanted it to look like, what was the story they were trying to tell. Uh, And we would put together these charts that would, it was cool. I got to go to a congressional uh, presentation, sit behind Ben Bernanke. You can see me probably on C-SPAN circa 2010 back there. So. Wow. And, uh, and did you see your charts in that congressional presentation? (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Uh, So that's really cool. Um. I have a couple of questions for you about the charts, um, because I know that, uh, you know, listeners will learn as we get through this, that Allison has always had a heavy data focus and understanding of data and, um, you know, how we communicate it, which I've always, uh, I've always thought was so valuable. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, at that point in time, the kinds of charts that were being asked for and put together by people who worked uh, at the Fed, um, how, how did that I'm wondering if you can kind of compare for us like their understanding of how to communicate meaning with data compared to the people we typically come across in the business world. Is it similar? Is it different? Were these like the best of the best? Were they like really boring? Like what did that look like? Uh, Often pretty standard. So there were like, I remember when I took over this position, there were just those like the 15 charts that we always do. And it's, you know, a line of GDP and then maybe a forecast line, like very standard. But then I remember we did one where we had to color the differences. We were showing deficits versus surplus and it was green and red. Um, And that was a fancy new one. But I think generally they were pretty standard and people were pretty used to looking at them. Uh, But this was definitely the seed for my future love of data viz because Mm -hmm. We, you know, it was years, you know, decades of data and you could put it in a chart and people would understand like what the story was, which I thought was so cool. Like that was the moment where I was like, oh, this visualization is so powerful as opposed to, you know, looking at a spreadsheet, which you're never going to understand what that is without visualizing. Like when did that spike happen or how long was it flat for? 
it's much easier to see when it's on a chart. Yeah, absolutely. And did you read books about data visualization or when did you start learning Not more about Not yet. So that, yeah, yeah, that comes when I uh, moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And, to tell us more, what happens yeah. next? So an RA at the Fed is about two or three years. Um, and then the idea is that you'll go off and get your PhD and then you'll come back. I think is the ideal situation. I was not interested in a PhD. So after two years, decided it was time to go do something else and always wanted to live in New York um, and called up my friend and said, I'm thinking about moving to New York. And she said, I have a room in my apartment. You can come live here. And I was like, perfect. I'm on my way. So I came to New York without a job and spent many days in the Whole Foods in Tribeca, uh, using their Wi-Fi and sending off my resume to lots and lots of different places. Wait, did your friend live in Tribeca? She lived in the financial district. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) I was like, whoa. (laughs) Um, Awesome. All right. Yeah. Uh, And then I I applied for all sorts of jobs, anything with the word analyst in it, because I was looking at things that my... Um, my past experience would lean toward, but I also I really wanted to be in advertising. So I kind of, the, like in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe I want to be a copywriter. So I was kind of interested in advertising. I had no creative experience in ways of copywriting. But one of the things I was thinking is like, oh, if I get in like as a project manager or something, maybe I can like be a part of it, even if I'm not exactly the creative. But Okay, I got to ask you about pop culture again. Was Mad Men uh, popular yet? <laughs> it must have been because, because, flash forward to when we were at Media Math, I was in an ad where we spoofed mm-hmm. Mad Men. I mean, I remember that. Yeah. 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 yeah so I feel it like must it must have been. been yeah. Yeah, it was already around. And um, that ad where you spoofed Mad Men was. Um, taken before I joined media math. Um, but like writer, like it was very recent and yeah. I remember like, yeah, everyone looks so cool. <laughs> That's one of the weirder like things I've done in my career is pose mm-hmm. for an advertisement that appeared in a magazine. Yeah. We'll yeah. have to put that in the show notes. <laughs> That's still available. <laughs> I have a copy. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so I so, think it was called analyst job. I found this job. I think it said, something about uh, like a data analyst, but it had a visualization piece to it. It was uh, making charts for a digital advertising company. It was Media Math. Uh, And I read the description of this job and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is so perfect for me. It's numbers, but it's advertising and it's charts. And I loved all the chart stuff I was doing at the Fed. So I applied, had no idea what the company did, went to their website, could not figure out what this company was, went through interviews, got hired at Media Math. Just want to mention for those of our listeners who are not aware, um, Allison is not alone. Uh, Most people at that point in time, that must have been what, like 2010, 2011? Uh 2010. Um, Yeah, at that point in time, most people looked at a website for a company in the ad tech space and we're like no idea what this place does yeah. <laughs> something in advertising that's all <laughs> yeah and I remember it was mind-blowing to me when I was I think I don't know if this happened during the interview probably did or in the orientation when I was told you know there are some uh, advertisements on websites that are pre-sold but then there's all this remnant inventory and that's where we live 
so like when you load the New York Times, that bottom left advertisement is decided in real time for you, the individual user. And that like blew my mind. It's like, how do we do that? Uh, but that's what the company did. So I joined there. I was on the analytics team. I think I was an analyst on the analytics team. Uh, and I did a lot of, I use a third party called, oh, what was it? Spot something. Isn't this funny? How funny? Spotfire. Spotfire. <laughs> I was like, that was my whole life. For I know. It years. is, it is funny. It is and funny. I and I, <laughs> to be fair, I would have never remembered it if you hadn't said spot, but then I was like, oh, Spotfire. I remember her talking about that and showing things from Spotify. it. Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I made charts for our clients uh, using this third-party tool, and that was a lot of my job, as well as like digging into uh, client data. So we often would hear this phrase, the numbers are off, and that was, uh, it's not a helpful phrase. <laughs> How, like, why are the numbers off? What did you expect versus what you're seeing? Um, but it was a lot of like, diving in, like, why are we seeing either discrepancies or like, if we're seeing a spike here, like, can we explain why that exists there for you? Yeah. Um, um, one thing I, I'm wondering um, if we could situate for our listeners is at that point in time, how old is Media Math as a company? And, uh, and, and how much of this is done manually? So the dying into data was fairly manual in ways of I learned SQL um, mm-hmm. at, at Media Math. Um, it was a lot of, I think I joined, so I was around 100 in ways of employee number at Media Math. Mm-hmm. And we were still a little scrappy in ways of, you know, there were cron jobs that ran to do a lot of data processing. And uh, sometimes they wouldn't run and we wouldn't always know why, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's totally true. I feel like so my husband worked there too. And I feel like there was a day he deleted the cron tab and that was like the <laughs> biggest day of his <laughs> career, uh, but they, they were able to recover. Um, but it was, there was a sophisticated data team at the time. Um, but right off the bat, I didn't interact with the data team quite as much as I would uh, later. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I yeah. first started, you know, they were just the people. I think they had the office upstairs uh, at that point, and it was like the rare sighting of a data engineer for me. Like I, mm-hmm. I worked just with the output of all of these things. Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to sort of um, dive into that a little bit is that I think it's really interesting. When we were at Media Math, and um, I joined in 2012, so like two years after you as employee number 140 or so, um, the Lean Startup hadn't come out yet, the book. And, you know, the the early principles that would um, come together in Eric Reese's The Lean Startup were definitely available. You know, we went to Marty Kagan's training. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's a precursor to The Lean Startup that, oh, Steve Blank, um, the steps, the five, four, five steps of the epiphany was out. Like a lot of things about customer development and, and um, you know, iterative development were available, but it hadn't yet taken the startup world, um, you know, it hadn't yet overtaken the, the edges of the startup world the way it has today. So I think our mm-hmm. listeners might think, 
oh, those are really classic techniques. Um, but actually, I feel like at that point in time, it was kind of, it was kind of scrappy in a good way. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, the history of their platform, the Terminal One platform, which managed the the um, which was the the place where people would come to set up what they wanted to advertise and go to get this data and things. Um, it really, you know, what I learned after I got there is that it really came together in a very lean startup kind of fashion of like, first, we're going to have people doing it and then we're going to automate it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I find it really fascinating. And your first job there was really kind of some of the things that later got automated, right? Mm-hmm. And then you got to be a person doing that part. Right. And that's, so 2007 Media Math was founded I joined in 2010 uh, and yeah, so initially I was building these third party to, or I use these third party tools to build client facing charts. And that was, you know, it was a platform that they were signing into. Uh, it was called math clarity and it was totally separate from the trading platform. So you had two places you would log in one for your reporting and one for your other uh, work. And for a while that was manual too. If, on one platform in particular, I remember if clients would change something on the interface, then we had people inside who would get an alert and then they would go change it in a different platform. So it looked more seamless than it was on the back end for sure. And then through opening international offices and just some changes in personnel, I was shifted over to the product team, which was a newly forming team. So that was probably after a year or so. Uh, my boss left and my boss's boss went to open the London office. And so I was kind of stranded, but not really because they made sure that I found a good home in the product team. They said, you already own this client facing reporting. You're building it. Uh, I, we think it makes sense to be on the product team. And I was like, I don't even like, what does the product team do? I didn't really understand what the product team did. And for a while I kind of just continued on building my stuff, but under the product uh, world. And then I uh, was put under the product manager for data. I think I started reporting to him. And then I learned, this was like another like uh, eye-opening moment. I remember when I took one of my stat classes about distribution, different like distributions that existed, it like blew my mind. I was like, what? All these things have existed. And I had no idea that they're like controlling the way that things work or like they describe the way that the world works. Uh, that was a big eye-opening moment for me. And then coming to Media Math uh, product team, it's like, I learned how to write user stories and work with engineers. That was a totally new thing. So it was no longer me doing the work. All of a sudden we've decided, uh, we're going to build this reporting outside of your third-party system. So that was my first intro into what is it to be a product manager. So you uh, you were essentially a user of the software that would come to be, but you were also the doer, the manual doer of it. And then mm-hmm. you really kind of automated your own job yes. um, and moved <laughs> into the the different role, right? I think that's so cool. And then uh, a couple other things that, you know, just because I have context that come to mind for me is like, I know by the time that I joined the team, um, you were reporting to the data product manager. And I think the product team had like six people, like there was the VP of product, there were like two senior product managers, and then like a couple of regular level product managers, which you and I were at. 
Um, and, uh, and something else that happened around this time that I think I hear people talk about all the time in tech product management is, um, well, we called it the new beta, but a lot of people call it a migration or a, um, a replatforming or, you know, all these other words. But basically, you know, they had pulled together over the first couple of years of once they started doing the, um, the tech in-house for some things, they had a flash flex version of it with, right. um, with kind of an API, I like to say, um, <laughs> like the API was there, but there were a lot of things still happening on the front end instead. And, um, and at the point in time that I got there, they were working on redesigning and rebuilding it on HTML5. And, uh, and I remember um, that you, you led what would reporting look like on there. Um, right. And, uh, and I think that really was, I mean, such a critical thing for, for the company to get right. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, like how, how you felt that, you know, um, how did you go about doing that? Because that's like a really gnarly problem, right? People are always, I'm always hearing people when I go out and I, you know, teach and I talk to people think that they couldn't possibly, um, they couldn't possibly like create a new one at the same time as the old one exists and have people go to more than one place because that'll mm-hmm. be a really bad experience. Like, oh my God, two logins. No, 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 no. We have to wait until we have only one login to even give it to a customer. You know, like, did you hear things like that inside media math and, and what were the responses and how, what did you think of what was happening? Cause you were new to product two. What was that like for you? Yeah. So I was really deep in math clarity. It was my everything. And I heard everything that was wrong with it uh, from internal and external. So I feel like I had a good understanding of what people liked and didn't like about what existed. And I think uh, more than having two logins being an issue, I remember people were so nervous about math clarity going away. So the old system going away, because they were so reliant on that old system, they couldn't fathom that the new system would maybe be better and serve their needs. And I, because the day we turned off math clarity was like, that's a big moment in uh, my media math career. And yeah, I think there was a lot of um, thought about if we want people to not have to go to two places, let's make sure that the new place serves their needs. So that was a lot of how we thought about prioritizing, like what will the early reporting be? Because we didn't wait until we had a full suite of reports. You know, we had tons of reports in math clarity, but we weren't going to wait until we had that full suite in the new system before we released it. So it was a lot of thoughts about like, well, what, what's most important in people's day to day. And I know you had the same thing, like you were working on the the trading part of it. Um, and a lot of it was what, what do people use the most and what's most important? Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you found that out. So for example, I remember, um, you know, that you picked um, that there were some, like maybe it was one report, maybe it was two, I don't remember how many, but that some reports came out and that was the first version of, you know, reporting in, uh, in T1 beta, which is what we call the new version of the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you pick which ones were coming first? Um, how did you find out which was used the most? What, what did that look like? So that was one thing. I had data on what people opened in Math Clarity. So I was able to see what reports were used most frequently. 
Uh, so that was one piece of data. And then the other was what people were doing. Uh, so one was the performance report. That's just like, how much money did you spend? How many clicks did you get? How many conversions did you get? Kind of the, the basic that you would imagine. And then another big one was where are you running? So that was a pretty huge one is the list of sites that you're running on and performance cut by those sites. So for us, those were two different reports and those were the ones that we prioritized. Then we kind of stopped and we thought, do we need to make more reports or should we prioritize letting people build their own reports? And that is in my memory, uh, the next thing we did. So I think we built those two reports and then we built a report builder for people because that seemed to be the higher value rather than making charts for a bunch of different things that we were getting to the point where people wanted to ingest their own data into their own systems. They didn't necessarily want to look at our charts all the time. So it was less about uh, pretty charts that were telling people as much as that hurts with my heart because I love making pretty charts. Uh, People didn't want to always look at our pretty charts. They often just wanted to take the data into their own system because a lot of our clients were using many different systems and they needed to pull all the data together in one place. And that was not what our platform did. That was something they were doing in their own thing. And how did you learn, um, how did you learn this is what clients were doing? Um, was it through salespeople? Was it through direct conversations? What did that learning process look like? A little bit of both. I think the account managers uh, were really, many of them were very close with their clients. So they were privy to all the different companies. It wasn't like they wouldn't tell them that they were using another platform. Um, and then also getting on the phone with people and asking, what are you doing with this? Like, even if they were looking at the performance report, it might be the case that they were actually just opening the performance report to export the data. So it was phone calls. And then uh, we tagged along on some account manager visits also where uh, luckily a lot of our account manager, as I mentioned, they had really good relationships. So people were pretty open with sharing all of their, their tasks and uh, we were able to get a firsthand view of that. But I remember many phone conversations and little windowless offices with clients having, having them walk me through what they were doing. Yeah, there was definitely a lot I remember too of um, seeing people walk through, you know, how they use the platform the way it was, um, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, getting then taking from that. Well, um, and I remember we would have conversations on the product team and with design um, where we would really try to get at not just like what were they doing and how do we recreate it, but what do they need out of this and how do we make the best version? Um, and I want to call that out just because uh, I think to us at the time, and that might have seemed like really obvious, <laughs> but um, but it's not something that I see happening everywhere in in product teams and teams doing migrations. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was one of the things that, you know, also was really valuable that that you were doing. And um, one other thought that came to mind for me in there was the account managers sharing and taking us along on things. Um, I hear from a lot of people, you know, sort of like, oh, the account managers just want to own the relationship entirely or, you know, they won't let us in. Um, do you remember a point in time at Media Math where that was the case and, or was that never the case? And, and how did that sort of evolve? I don't remember that being the case, but one of the things that had been in place 
for as long as I can remember is T1 user breakfast. So that user maybe is a little bit of a misnomer because it wasn't external users. Is that what we called it, T1 user breakfast? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember but the breakfast. <laughs> it's where all sales and account, I think we did it every other week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would every bring, other Friday morning, yeah, every yeah. other Friday morning. And the product team would bring breakfast. Like we always, we spent a little bit of time in our team meeting deciding who would bring coffee and who would bring the treats. And then we would show it, we'd meet with sales and account and really whoever in the organization wanted to come, but it was mostly focused on sales and account and show them things that were coming up, ask for feedback. What had they heard? Sometimes it was just conversations uh, and we got a lot of great information that way. And I think also built a lot of trust with the, the rest of the organization because we weren't sitting alone in like a product cave. Um, We were regularly talking to everyone and clearly taking their input and putting it into, like they saw things they said come out in our product. So I feel Mm -hmm. like that was a way that we built trust with them and they were very willing to bring us along because they knew it might make its way into the product. If this customer says this thing uh, and it, and we hear it other places too, then it's likely that we might solve their problem for them in a, in short order. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that was such a powerful practice that was, you know, already there when I got there. Um, But that, you know, I, I really, took on as something that I, I wanted to make sure that when my teams were doing things, we always were sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I also kind of vividly remember is the feel, like when we were in uh, Lagrange um, or Lagrange, I forget how you pronounce that word, but uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just remember like times when the, the user breakfast had so many people that some of them were like sitting on the floor, like, yeah. um, you know, Up sitting on the, the side of chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it really had this feel of like, we're all together here, like having our breakfast and like digging in on like, how does this work and helping each other understand to get to the best outcome. And, um, and I just feel like, like I never had that feel to be honest. Like I don't really remember meetings of that size where there was that kind of like we're digging in together feel while I was at Shutterstock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just like there was something about that, you know, that setup in that that particular room was more of a lounge than a conference room. And, you know, it lent itself to that feel. Yeah. Um, but I think that had an effect too on how people shared, you know, because mm-hmm. people share differently in different environments. Yeah, that's for sure true. And that's something jumping forward. So I moved to New Zealand at tech company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and brought that great practice with me that, you know, after a little bit of time, I asked, you know, could I start this meeting? We called it teacher's lounge and it was very similar. It was the product team bringing things in, you know, either just conversations or it could be really early stage, or it could be, we're about to release this next week. Like let's do a final walkthrough all together that I, again, like with essentially account managers had a very similar impact. I think that they were on the inside and they knew what was going on and they had a real impact. Yeah. And you were actually just telling us recently that, that you felt like that helped change the whole dynamic, um, you know, of people understanding and being aligned once you brought that, uh, tried that forum. Is there any, any thoughts that you can share on like, if our listener of ours is, um, you know, not a, not a, 
in the bureaucracy not call the leader on their team, but they want to make this happen? Um, like, were there any hurdles you overcame bringing that into a place that didn't have it? Um, what did that look like? I think it, explaining why I thought it was important was a helpful piece. So, you know, it's also, uh, depending on who it is, we were working with te- a lot of teachers who had left the classroom who didn't know what a product team was, didn't know what a product team did. So I think making it clear that like, I think this will be a great thing for the organization, uh, not just for the relationship between these two teams, but this will be something that will build a relationship across across the organization. Uh, I didn't run into any real issues aside from I did wait a little bit because I feel like when I got to New Zella, I had come from Media Math. We were like, we were a pretty functional product team with a lot of, you know, I was deep in Jira. I'm still a Jira fan. And I got to New Zella and I was like, where's Jira? We don't use Jira here. Uh, I was like the second product manager and they were like, no, we just use GitHub. That's, we all, we use GitHub. And it's like, I don't think this is going to work for me. So I brought it up a few times and the company was starting to get big enough that like it was starting to get traction. One of the engineers was interested in it, but there were some things at New Zealand. I feel like I was told initially, like, let's just wait a second. There's a lot of things changing right now. Like, let's not throw too much at the group. So I do feel like Teacher's Lounge was, you know, a little bit after I settled in because uh, it's, I wouldn't say I came in and I was like, we need to change everything. I know the way things should be because I didn't. I was learning that whole industry. Like I didn't know education. Uh, I didn't know what Newzella was doing in ways of like, I didn't know that industry super well yet, but I did know product. So I came in with some thoughts about like what tools we needed. And I feel like my boss kind of like, I wanted to do sprints. We weren't doing sprints yet. Uh, And I was like, how can we work if we're not working in sprints? This is crazy. Uh, But he was like, let's just like go a little slower. Like you can do sprints, but maybe just work with the team for a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I think that was good advice uh, because I definitely didn't come in with, I feel like, I hear about leaders in particular who come in, they're like, well, I'm coming in to fix this thing. So here I am changing all these things. And that wasn't at all the attitude I came in with, but I can see how it might've come off that way. Um, had I come in and wanted to change a lot of things or bring a lot of new tools in. Yeah. Um, so they weren't using sprints. What were they, what were they doing? Cause I know there's more than one version of not using sprints. There's like the waterfall version and there's the like super Kanban version. And then there's other things in between. It was like milestones, I think is how we work. So it was okay. yeah, more like Kanban sort of uh-huh. like, we'll do all the work in this group. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were those groups though? I don't remember to be honest. Okay. I think that's the, like, to me, um, you know, stepping back for a second to like product principles geekery. um, (laughs) To me, I think the key thing is less like whether you call it a sprint or something else. It's more like how big are those groups and how how many days pass between the change of one, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, some of that might have been my own, like, I just didn't know how, like, I learned product at Media Math. So I didn't know how to do other product. Like, I thought product 
uh, I mean, I knew about other types, but I hadn't experienced it. And mm-hmm. I'd never had the real opportunity to like, oh, try it out, see how that works. Mm-hmm. Whereas that was something at New Zella that it was like, oh, we can try these things out. And we really did. I think that uh, the product team was, as I said, I think there were two product managers when I started and then the head of product. And then we hired a third shortly after me. And that was kind of our team for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for better or worse, we tried a lot of things. And I think it can both be great because you try a lot of things, but it can also be a little like whiplashy because mm-hmm. you try a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I also, so for me, um, Media Math was my third tech company job where I did a product type of function. They weren't the first, they weren't always called products. It was product somewhere else. And then the one before that, I just called myself the like COO or something because it was a five person team. Um, But Media Math was the place where I learned how to do product at scale. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, where we had, when I joined, there were 140 people in the company and I think I left shortly before you. So we were probably both around the same size when we left. Um, For me, I think it was at like 900 people. And so, you know, by that point in time, there's hundreds of engineers and Media Math was the only place where I did product at that kind of scale. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I had a similar experience of, you know, when I got to Shutterstock and they had a similar scale and um, I started realizing that there were all these, there are all these places where um, in product, we think we know what someone's talking about because they use the same word as us. And it turns out that the word does not have the same meaning inside this mm-hmm. company. <laughs> like there's a lot of that. And since then as well that I've learned. And so you know, and I work with people who are like mid-career, I'm always telling them, um, like I had this conversation with somebody just the other day, like interviewing for a new job, like you should ask people to, you should just ask people, like, what is the definition of this word here? Like, how do you do this thing? What does it mean to be in product? And like, just tell them the reason you're asking is because you know, it's different in a lot of places. You're not, you're not an idiot. You just like, you want to know what it means here. Um, mm-hmm. Because we can like, we can say the same words because we read the same books, but what it means in practice is so different at different companies. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And responsibility can really vary uh, based on, yeah, what the team around you is and largely who starts, I think, like who was there at the beginning and how did things build from there? Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. So tell us a little more about um, your journey at Nuzella. What, um, what are, are there interesting stories from that that you would want to share? Were you involved in data visualization there or did you um, step away from that? So not really. I think that was something I kind of came in thinking that would be more of my role because uh, there is a teacher analytics dashboard component. Mm-hmm. And I did I did redo it, uh, <laughs> but that was actually, that was an interesting project because I came in and that was something that I was told, like, we're going to redo uh, the teacher analytics. And I was pumped because this was like, this is my wheelhouse. I love the data piece. I like making data really consumable to people. Um, And I heard all the issues that people had brought up with the the dashboard they had today and the reports they had today. I I heard what they wanted. I heard what they didn't have today. I heard what they liked about it. But part of it too just felt like, I think, I wish I had questioned more initially when I was told this is the project we're going to do. Cause I was just immediately so excited by it uh, that I like looking back, I wish I had put on my, my product hat and asked 
why? Like, why are we working on this project right now? Is it really that people can't do what they need to do? Or are they just asking for more because they like, they think it would be cool? Uh, or I think part of it, honestly, is it looked a little dated. Um, so the company just wanted a refresh. They wanted it to look more modern, which is like a little bit what we prioritized. And I, um, yeah, I wish I had used a lot more product research up front because even though I talked to so many teachers and this is like working at HR has, uh, really, I feel like I've seen this driven home so many times, like know what your research goal is. Like I talked to so many teachers, uh, which is like, I love the user research part. Obviously that's like where I am now. Uh, I love talking to people. I love learning about how they do things and, uh, what their situation is, what challenges they have. And at Newzella, I really did. I talked to a ton of people. I also had a bunch of former teachers on staff, so I could talk to them all the time. But what I didn't have a clear view of, I think, is like, what question am I asking? Not just like, what can we do better? That's, that's not the right question to ask, I think. Uh, but that was the question I kind of went out with was like, what would you want to see? Which is just, that led me in a million directions and I didn't know what to do with the information I got back. So I wish I had started that project a little differently because we did update things. We made it, we just threw a lot of data at people is what it kind of ended up being. We had some sort of fancy looking charts and we added a lot of it information, but I think I would have done it differently if I like getting through the other side of the project, I think. I might have just thrown a spreadsheet at them, honestly, yeah. <laughs> rather than trying to make this fancy looking table. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good lesson that a lot of us, um, a lot of us have some point where we learn or learn again. Um, you know, yeah. it's like sometimes you just, especially when you have the pressure from the leadership of a company and, you know, they want things to look pretty and, um, you know, there's a lot of reason that it can be fun to jump on that project, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, it can be fun to jump on the redesign. Like most people on the product side of things and the design side of things enjoy redesigning stuff because they always think that we can do it better than we did, right. you know? Um, but the challenge is figuring out how valuable is that redesign and is it going to mm -hmm. be worth the cost? And I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. And I know that I think you didn't have a lot of insight into the business you know, maybe, I don't know, how much insight did you have into, into what the business goals out of that were and how, how that would be measured? I think that wasn't something that came until much later. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that was like the maturity of the product organization at the time. Like we were kind of, you know, there was a lot of good work done on gut feeling early on. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the point where we need to start tracking metrics and like really paying attention to all of that. And I think some of this work was plan maybe before we we thought through all of that mm -hmm. um, but I think that kind of rather than being set all up front I think the project up front was kind of like we need to redesign this part of the website rather than like uh, we need to drop our teachers like teachers should only spend half the time in the analytics that they are today something like that like mm-hmm yeah like having a, a metric or a reason you're doing it yeah that yeah so I feel like that stuff came out over time, but that was, that was a huge project um, that lasted a really long time. And we were not, um, there wasn't much 
like partial release going on. It was kind mm. of like, we got to do a big switch over, which is a really scary moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we had, we had beta testers, but it was, I, I also think I would change the way I did that release where, you know, I find a way to get like the test groups out earlier um, mm-hmm. and like smaller pieces. Cause there's a real appetite for being a part of something new uh, with those users people were excited to be a part of like what's coming. Yeah. But at the same time they need to do their job. So if you interfere with that, that's that's the fear is like yep. teachers don't have much time. So if you just messed up their day because you're testing something on them, uh, yeah. that's a real bad thing for users. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So let's kind of go from there to what you do now. So what 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 kind of happened next for you? Yes. So I moved to Portland, Oregon. So Nuzella was in New York and then my husband got a job in Portland and we moved to Portland and I again moved without a job uh, <laughs> and had been thinking, had really been doing some thinking at the end of Nuzella, like is product really what I want to continue with or uh, do I want to do something totally outside of software and technology or uh, would I want to focus more on user research or analytics? That was something I had kind of thought like, would I want to be like a product analytics person, which now is like data science and beyond some of my, like, I know enough SQL to be dangerous, but I'm, I'm no data scientist. So I really started thinking like, well, where do I want to focus my time? And I, I talked to all of these teachers. I love talking to teachers. I love being immersed in all of that and being able to use what I heard, uh, which I did frequently at New because I would be out in the classroom and someone would bring something up in a meeting and I'd be like, well, I don't know if that's always the case. Like I saw this thing in a classroom and that would make us rethink like, oh, okay. So maybe that won't do what we thought. Uh, we assumed everyone worked like this. And I would often have these counterpoints where I was like, oh, well, I saw this funny thing. Um, like we should maybe explore what's going on there. So thought I was interested in more user research, uh, maybe stepping a little bit away from more of the, the traditional product role. Uh, and then you and I chatted and <laughs> you, you were actually looking for someone to help with user research on our project. So I was able to, to jump in there and really, you know, I've learned a lot. Uh, it's a lot of what I was already doing as a product manager, doing their own user research. I've never had a user research team anywhere I've worked. Mm-hmm. So it's always been me and the designer figuring out, you know, we do the recruiting, we do the incentive payments, we do the scheduling. Like that's always been something I've had to do as a product manager. And I like that now that's, that's all of what I do. Uh, that's like where I really get to focus a lot of my time is uh, thinking and thinking much more about like, well, what are we asking and why are we asking it? Uh, what do we want to learn and what are the best questions to do that? Because when you're a product manager, it can be really hard to have the time to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as important as we know it all is, you know, we had grand plans of doing like every Thursday we'll do user interviews, but like work comes along and you just don't have time to schedule and recruit and write those tests and make sure you have something. Uh, Cause you just have 
for product manager stuff and like you have a million meetings to go to and then you try and do your work in those like 30 minute slots when you're not in a meeting. Um, <laughs> yes. So users are like getting interviews done when they weren't the top priority of like, oh, we have to test this right now was always hard. So I really like that I get to focus on that now and then uh, work with other people and collaborate uh, as to how that will help the product learnings for different organizations. Yeah. I mean, I really love that you do that too, because it's so awesome (laughs) to do it together. Um, But tell us a little bit, um, I think sort of as as we're wrapping up, um, what are some of your favorite either tools or lessons that you, um, that you find yourself teaching again and again to our clients, um, you know, as you're walking them down the let's do user research together and really get you deep into what it is, um, you know, because we don't, uh, we don't just do research for people. We do it with them to teach them how to do it themselves. Right. And so what are the, you know, I know you've also sort of evolved a bit as a coach, right? So what mm-hmm. are some of the lessons you find yourself teaching again and again? Yeah, let's see. Uh, One is it's not bad to use a third-party recruiter. Uh, That's a big one just coming from what I've done previously. If you can, and some of them are not very expensive at all, uh, we use user interviews a lot and they're great. That can make your life way easier just logistically. Uh, I'm thinking of one of our clients who was spending a lot of time reviewing recruits and potential participants. And then once we started using user interviews with them, it's just, you know, it's been probably hours of their week that they've gotten back. Um, So just logistically, that could be a great thing. If you don't have a pool of users, you can easily tap. Another, and this is, I mean, this is kind of obvious, but the more interviews you do, the more comfortable you will be. It will be uncomfortable for those first, especially like the first handful of interviews it will feel uncomfortable if you've never done interviews before, but being prepared and we always prepare a script so that you have something to lean back on. You don't have to come up with these questions off the cuff, nor really should you, you should know what you want to ask and why, Uh, but it'll be hard. Doing an interview is always better than not doing an interview. Even if it goes a little, it's a little rocky or it goes a little like off the path, uh, you will, almost for sure learn something that you didn't know before. So I think just like doing it uh, and making it a cadence is really helpful. So, you know, like every week, if you can, and it's helpful to have someone to help you with this, of course, but uh, if it just becomes practice that every week we're gonna talk to someone, uh, that'll get you more comfortable more quickly. Yeah, definitely. Um, Are there some things you've noticed um, maybe when you work with a, a client who has done, has either consumed or done research in the past, but it was always like a big project and now we're teaching them how to do it, you know, continuously week by week. Um, are there things you've noticed that have sort of been ahas for them about how that changes the structure of, you know, what they do with the research or how they use it in their work? Yeah, I think one thing is just getting to know your user more deeply. So I'm thinking some people when they do research, well, and maybe I'll call it research or uh, I was going to say, I think often it's usability. So we're testing prototypes. I think that's a lot of what people do when they're doing research is they're not necessarily just 
or I'll speak for myself. I feel like this is uh, how I was for some time is like a lot of the user interaction I would have is like testing prototypes. Um, it's not just general discussions about like, what's your situation and what challenges are you facing and what do you wish you could achieve? So I think having conversations that aren't about a particular new feature can be really useful because that's where some of the bigger ideas can come from. If I'm not asking you like particularly about this new thing that I have, uh, you learn a lot just about how the person, um, who the person is more generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times we call those the the discovery interviews right. versus the usability tests, right? Yes. And um, and I find myself, um, you know, uh, I completely agree with what you're saying. And, you know, I end up in a lot more of these conversations with people early on who are deciding whether to work with us. And I find myself all the time explaining why we do so many discovery interviews and <laughs> what it's for mm-hmm. and how, how many problems it solves. And like, um, you know, it, it's, it, I, I think you're totally right. That's a big piece that a lot of people think that they can just uh, research is testing prototypes. It's usability testing and that's all it is. Mm-hmm. And um, you're missing so much if that's all you're doing. Yeah, that's, I'm thinking of a team that uh, they tested a good amount. They did usability tests on new features and things, but they'd never seen people just use their site as it existed yeah. uh, because that wasn't, a prototype that they were testing. That was the thing that was already out in the world. Uh, so that was just like a missing, missing piece of information that, you know, when we had, we were doing these things every week, that was one of the things that came up. It was like, well, we have time. Would, would this be something that would be useful for you? And that's how you learned, right? Yeah. That they hadn't even done it. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember that thinking, uh, you know, like there was kind of an assumption that it had been done. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we better wrap up because um, I'm, you know, our listeners might be like, <laughs> might might have thought that this would be a certain length. Um, <laughs> although I don't exactly promise that. Um, but um, I'm curious if you have any final thoughts, um, you know, in particular for people that maybe are, you know, trying to figure out what's the right part of the tech industry for them. You know, because not everybody, not everybody is a product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody should stay a product manager forever. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about about what that's been like for you. Yeah, I think some of it is thinking about what parts. Uh, what do I want to say? Now let's talk about flow state. Like, where do you find that you're you can spend time or energy, and it doesn't feel like work so much, uh, like what's easier. And that's kind of what I gravitated towards both with data and the user research. These are the parts that for me aren't as challenging. And I think also another thing I've just noticed about the way that I work is um, I like spending a little bit more time by myself. And as a product manager, you are on a lot. Uh, and I've just found that this has been a better fit for me where I have a little bit more time. That's just kind of solo work, even though it's with people, I interview people all the time, but it's, it's different than being, you know, the, the point person on a team. Yeah. The one-on-one or the, you know, three person conversation is a lot more intimate and feels very different from the like, you know, 10 person meeting. Running all right? the meetings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It takes a different kind of energy for sure. 
Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I love that. I think that's that's a really important thing is just to really think about what parts of our days were the happiest in, you know, what parts mm -hmm. of our days we love and, um, and you know, kind of look around and see if there's something that gives you more of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, if people want to find you, um, how can they how can they follow Allison? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, you're like, no, nope, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's pretty much that's after it, right? working in digital advertising, I try and keep myself off. Uh, no, but that's true. I think I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, my that's, Instagram is boring. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. But if people do want to um, to reach out to Allison to ask her questions or, um, you know, to, um, I don't know, hire her, um, <laughs> not hire her away from me, but ask her more about what she could do, um, you know, what, what, what her kind of work could do or things like that. Um, you can reach out to her on LinkedIn or um, probably send you an email. Would that mm -hmm. be? Yeah. Um, Allison at h2rproductscience.com. Yes. That will get you, Allison. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. This has been a pleasure, and I'm super yeah, excited to share you, it with Holly. our listeners. <laughs> Thanks, Allison. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.